Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, February 26, 2023, called I Have Redeemed You from the Beginning, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's grace and his mercy and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ. And there is a sermon outline if you want to follow along. We're starting something here in Lent, a little different series here until we get to Easter. And this one is about, this one is tied into our theme for the year. Remember from Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So we've been using that theme all the way through the school year and at Christmas time. And, and here in Lent, we want to focus in on that phrase, I have redeemed you. You know, that's not a common word in our, in our daily conversation, the idea of redemption. Although I'm old enough to remember it, S&H Green Stamps. <laughs> Who's old enough like me? Who's old like me, Right. Um, in which you collected these things. You collected them and you redeemed them. And so you would get enough stamps and you could redeem them for points. It's kind of like Sky Miles, but much funner. Um, Anyway, it's that kind of thing. Anyway, you would redeem them. And you you did that with any number of different things. And the the idea, it was to, you use this to buy something back. Living in Oregon, we live with that and they still do. Uh, You know, soda bottles and cans. You redeem those. You pay your money when you buy them. Five, is it still five cents? Anyone know? Is it still five cents in Oregon? Anyway, it was a nickel for every can or bottle, and then you get it back. And, and you know, when I was in college, man, we would scour every garbage can for as much as we could just so I could get a Big Mac or something, you know, and you'd bring back garbage cans full of, of these things that people weren't willing to redeem. It didn't matter. It wasn't worth enough to them to redeem, and we would gather those redeem those, and then get something for it. So the idea here in the Bible is the idea of of redemption or redeemer. And that, you know, is a churchy word. That's a word that's used in churches. I went to, as a kid, I went to Redeemer Lutheran Church and School in New York. That's where I I went, uh, Redeemer. Or you might have our Redeemer. Um, I had one, a neighboring church in the the Portland area. And so you, you have that, that phrase, and it comes from two primary places that we're familiar with in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with this, these are pretty cool. The older one is from Job, the book of Job. And near the end of the book of Job, even after Job has gone through all of this horrible stuff, he ends up making this bold confession of faith. And if you go to traditional service or you've been to a funeral service, we sing, I know that my Redeemer lives. Um, it's a classical piece of music too. Um, and so I know that my redeemer lives and that in my flesh, I will see God. Job says that that's interesting. He knows that he's got someone who will buy him back someday, someone who will ransom him. But the more, the one that's more kind of poignant and personal is the one in the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, it's just a delightful story. And she's like, I don't know, David's great, great, great grandmother, something like that. But Ruth is not Jewish. Ruth is not an Israelite. She's from Moab, kind of an enemy country. Her, uh, her husband was an Israelite boy, and they lived in Moab because there was famine. And then famine struck Moab, and they went back. But 
In the meantime, her husband died. So she didn't have her Jewish husband, but she went back to Israel with her mother-in-law and accompanied her. It's a wonderful, tender story. It's a beautiful, tender story. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. It's delightful. And this non-Jewish woman takes a key place in the role of the coming of the Messiah and of King David. It's really cool. But what's interesting is she was an unattached foreign woman. This, in, these are dangerous times. You don't have a police force. You don't have the kind of structure or social protections and things that are in place. And so God had placed in the law a series of social protections for people like widows and orphans, and especially for this widow who is Ruth, and it's called a goel. In Hebrew, it's a goel. It's a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And the idea was if this person lost their husband, she could be susceptible to all kinds of bad behavior. Um, and it wasn't just that it was a Jewish thing, but whoever lived there, ruffians and rogues and whoever, people who just took advantage. And so God had put this in that the nearest relative was obligated to buy her back. Now, I know that sounds politically incorrect. You know, she's an independent woman, stand on your own two feet. Trust me, this is a huge social protection in that culture, in that area. This is a tremendous gift to protect uh, women in that time. Now, here's the interesting thing. The word in Hebrew has a whole number of meanings. It literally means to buy back. And typically, you actually were required to spend more than the actual cost. And you know why? The, 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 the Torah says to protect from dishonesty. In other words, you paid more assuming the other guy would try to take advantage of you. So that's interesting. That's God's generosity. I'll talk about that a little bit later. And so it was a buyback idea. You bought back. And it was, a, it was a duty. It was an obligation, but also an opportunity. Because in Ruth's case, there was a plot of land that her husband had owned. And so here's the interesting thing. The relative, the nearest redeemer, kinsman redeemer, the Goel, he was willing to buy the land but didn't want the girl. And God says, no, doesn't work like that. Isn't that great? Doesn't work like that. And so the person who does ultimately buy her back, and it's a wonderful love story in the Bible, his name is Boaz, and he ends up purchasing, you know, being her redeemer and she becomes his wife and like David's great-great-grandmother. So it's a, that's, that's the fundamental understanding of the idea of Redeemer. Someone willing to pay more to buy you back. You know what's another wonderful kind of, doesn't that point you to Jesus? It points you to Jesus. Here's another one that points you to Jesus. The idea of Redeemer is that it was a second life. It was a second life. That, that's also in that word. So it's almost like baptism, Right? In fact, it was cool at Ash Wednesday. If you were here at Ash Wednesday, man, it just made, I'm good for a year now. We had baptisms and imposition of ashes and communion. And, and one of the girls who was baptized, it was her birthday also. She, she has two birthdays on the same day. It's way cool. It was so cool. So anyway, that's the idea of Redeemer. And that's what we want to talk about in these Sundays in Lent. So we're going to see, like next week, Aaron's going to preach. He's going to talk about the Passover lamb. That's an act of redemption. And then we're going to move on and talk about different things as we approach the cross here in the season of Lent. So if you follow this, we're going to look. I'm going to actually touch on each of the readings, but mostly it's Genesis chapter 3. You know, when I teach Genesis 3 and the fall into sin, 
I mean, it's, you know, what's, it's interesting because there are actually kind of humorous parts in that section. You can kind of chuckle at them. You know, when God confronts Adam, what's this, what'd you do, buddy? And he goes, the woman's defective, you know? I mean, it's kind of like that, you know? Um, but it's so sad. It's really a sad story. Um, they just really, they really blow it. It could go so many different ways, couldn't it have? Although, boy, it's common to us. We, we get it. They run and hide. They do this thing. Like, you know, when you read that, and thanks, Nikki. Beautiful job reading. Appreciate that. Thank you. You know, I want to edit that always. When it says, uh, um, when the woman, she's tempted by the serpent, right? When the woman saw that the, tr- the tree was uh, pleasing to the eye and good for food, she took one and ate it. And then I want to edit the next part. And she gave it to her idiot husband who said nothing like a fool. He abdicated, didn't he? He just abdicated. He abdicated. And that doesn't mean he's better or worse or this or that. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. I mean, think how that should have played. It's the very beginning. It's perfect. God's got paradise. It's perfect. And now it's messed up. It's just, there's a stain. There's a there's a cancer and it's going to spread and it results in death. And I, I can't even imagine the heart of God and the sadness of that moment. I can't even imagine it. But here's the thing. So when, I te- when we teach this, Chris just taught it a week ago or two weeks ago. When we teach this, we always get these kinds of questions, right? Well, why, if God, if, you know, if, why didn't God make them of better stuff to resist the temptation better? And we don't have answers for these things. What we're saying is, what we know is they were made of, they, we are made of as good a stuff as can be made. In the image of God, with the mind and heart, right, of longing for God, an eternal soul, nothing could be better. We are the high point of creation, and we are the focus of the love of God. And that's going to lead into why redemption starts in the very beginning, because here's another question I get. Oh, let me give you another one. I'm squirreling. I get this question too. How come, so, how come bad things happen to good people? And the trite, glib answer is, there are no good people. But you know what I mean, right? Why, is, why do yucky things say, why does cancer happen to a kid? Why does that happen? And we always say, the, easy, the right answer is, is that we have a broken world. It's a broken world. And so people will say, well, how come so many bad things happen? And, and I don't try to be, I'm not trying to be snarky or, or trite or anything, but I honestly believe this. I am no longer surprised that bad things happen in this world. In the gig I'm in, you deal with lots of bad. People are hurting. There's a lot of hurt. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it is inflicted by others. And some of it is just the circumstances of a broken world. It's a lot of hurt. I'm no longer surprised that bad, you know what? I'm, I'm thrilled that good things do. Which tells me that God has not abandoned us. Because if God had actually abandoned us, imagine how, hor- how hellish that would be. So, but there's the third question I get. And this is what I want to deal with. If God knew that they were going to sin, why did he do it? If he knew they were going to break the perfect creation he made, why did he do it? So you know what's, there's a troubling trend today. 
And I got to caveat this because I'm making no comments. I'm not one of these guys that's, I'm now I'm going to stand up here and say, everybody should have eight kids. If you have eight kids, God bless you. You are my hero. And if you don't have children, that's your decision. And I don't know the circumstances God put in your life. It's just what it is. But let me tell you this. Here's some data. Child, child birth rate is down. It's down. And there's actually a number that economists and, some, you know, when historians and humanitarians, there's a number like 2.4 per family or whatever that kind of sustains economies and this and that. You know, like if you're like 35 years old, you should be a little terrified that you might have to work to be 102 to get Social Security. You know, I mean, sorry, now you'll, now you'll only think about that. <laughs> sorry. No, but I mean, so there's that. But, but, and so now people, people that are in their 20s thinking about having kids, the, it's way down. And when you ask the question, why, why aren't you having kids? It's, I get it. There are circumstances where people don't have children. I get it. I get it. There could be physical things. There could be historical things. There could be, I get it. But these answers trouble me. I like my life the way it is. I don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night. It's inconvenient. It may involve some pain. See what I'm saying? Those bother me. That concerns me. Because I'm telling you what, good things come because of sacrifice and investment. Like, like, you know, when people come to me, I'll do a wedding, and somebody comes to me a year later and says, Pastor we're going to have a baby. And I go, congratulations, your life's completely screwed up. <laughs> In the best way possible. And I always say that. Your life is now going to be completely upside down and completely goofed up, but it's in the best possible way. I would trade... Sorry, what, what do we got going on here? Oh, I, <laughs> I just looked at my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful investment we make. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And this is really my first point. God has kids anyway. Do you think he knows? I mean, isn't that great in the, in the fall into man? Hey, Ha, where are you, right? That one. Do you think he knows? I think he knows, right? Where Adam and Eve are. And then says, oh, did you eat from the tree? You know, I think he knows, right? Uh, God knows, exactly. And to be honest, parents are not stupid. Sometimes we're a little naive and pie-eyed and rose-colored glasses, but we're not stupid. We were kids too. And so we know what rebellion and disobedience, and we know what that looks like. We know how it impacts relationships and how you can lose trust. And I would trade nothing. I would trade nothing for my kids. There's nothing I wouldn't trade. And so I, what I'm saying is God has kids anyway because we are his children. And this is really the thing that I wanted you to know um, is, is as, because in our, in our situation, the Genesis account is really this. God always has kids because we are the high point of his creation and we are consistently the focus of his love. Let us make manage our image in our likeness and let them rule. How dumb was that decision by God, right? And yet he entrusted all of creation into our hands. Second point, second point. So it's interesting. So I'm building this house. Now I'm kind of like, 
like I'm going, we were, we were really fortunate. We had saved and saved for years. I'm a cheapskate, so I bought all my materials, lumber and OSB and appliances. Like a, I started two years before the project. And when I saw it on sale, wham, bought it, put it in the storage. I bought all this stuff. So we were really blessed that we could build this house just with the proceeds of the sale of the other house. Praise God. We were really, we were really blessed. But now I'm going, how do I prove that I own this place? That's weird. Because normally I have a mortgage, and I would have a big bunch of paperwork and a big bunch of things that you sign, and you know it's registered with a bank, and people know. And I'm going, how do I know? So I started asking around and different things that I should do, and what should I set up, financial mechanisms. One of the tools that somebody talked to me about was, is that you should set up an LLC. And I said, What's an LLC? I don't know what an LLC is. What is that? I said, what is that? Oh, it stands for Limited Liability Corporation. And I said, ooh, I can limit my liability? This is a good thing. And then as I was thinking about this, I said, thanks be to God, God sets up no LLCs. God takes ownership seriously. There are no limited liability corporations for God. His are TLC, total liability. That's what God does. He who did not even spare his own son, I'm quoting Romans 8, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also willingly, graciously give us all things? Spared no expense. He who spared nothing. God takes ownership seriously. And you know, you have these, you have these creation accounts. Chapter 1, I call it the Jean-Luc Picard version of creation. Make it so, right? That one, right? And God said. But then in chapter 2, you get this wonderful image. And the Lord God formed the man. And you can see it. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a nephesh, a living being, a man with a soul. It's a fascinating thing. It's intimate, isn't it? It's intimate. And you know what's interesting to me? God is so generous. In creation, we see the generosity of God. He makes all of creation, and he made it for you and for me. He made it for us. He made it for humanity. He entrusted it to our care. We've kind of blown that in many ways, too. Some ways we're getting better, which is great. But he put it into our care to be stewards, not to worship trees and not to worship gold or silver that comes out of the ground, created things, but to care for it, right? What a generous God we have. You couldn't have a more generous God. But let me say this. He is not generous with his children. He's jealous for his children. He doesn't give them away. He's jealous for his children. You know, it's one of those illustrations I love in the, in the New Testament. You know what the image of the... So we have two metaphors for God's relationship with his people. One is a father and child, or a parent and child. The other one is husband and wife, isn't it? I'm jealous for my wife, isn't it? Jealous is like a bad word, isn't it? You know, like it sounds wrong, sinful, mean. God is called a jealous God. He wants me to be jealous for Teresa. Not jealous about her, for her. I don't share her. Get what I'm saying? God doesn't do the, God's the same. These are mine. These are mine. And I love them. And they are precious to me. And I will prove to them how much they matter to me. Because even when they walk away from me, they turn their back on me, I'm going to pursue them. And I'm going to pursue them relentlessly. And I'm even before they even turn to me, 
I'm going to take a bloody road up to the top of a small hill and I'm going to sacrifice myself for them because they could not do it on their own. I'm going to show them how much I love them. God takes ownership seriously. Third thing, third thing. So, you know, as I go along building this house, and I joke about it, um, my buddy Brad is here, and I say it all the time, I'm a blunt instrument. I'm a pretty good hand, and I'm not stupid. I can learn things, but Brad was the brains of the operation. And so, and every once in a while, and Brad would say to me, there's, you know, he, said, he would say to me, something I, I really appreciate about you, you'll just do stuff. And then I said, yeah, but sometimes that backfires too, doesn't it? I'll just do stuff. And then we have to yank it all out and replace it or recut it or do something else like that. And you know what's interesting? Whether it was siding or whether it's tile or whether it's flooring, there are times I had to yank stuff out and start over. When Adam and Eve are standing before God and they are, and they are caught, right? It is red-handed. They stand naked before God. I don't think those fig leaves did much. They're exposed, caught in their sin. God could have said, I'm starting over. But that's not the God we have. God is into restoration, not replacement. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is amazing. God standing there, and they're in disobedience, and there's the devil. There's the serpent smirking, laughing. See what I did? See what I did to your perfect world? And God curses the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. That's us. And then he switches to that singular male pronoun. He will strike your head. He will crush your head. And you'll strike his heel. Right there, in the midst of their sin, God promises them redemption. He is not into replacement. He's not into casting them aside. He's not into throwing them away. He's into restoring them and making them whole. Fourth thing, I want to show you this. I've shown you this before. Forgive me for reusing this illustration. This is one of the most beautiful things that uh, we have in our home. We lived in Japan for a couple of years, and this is called kintsugi. If you remember me talking about it before, in the Japanese, they don't always do this, but this is an art form. In a, when they break a pot, if a pot is broken... They can restore it, and they use it with like an enamel, but it's filled with a gold powder, not for pretty, for, for strength. So that when they fill those seams with enamel, the, the, the repaired jar is actually two things. It's stronger, and it's more beautiful. In a certain way. The cracks are what's filled. And you know what's funny? Before it's healed, it isn't the cracks that make the pot beautiful. It's restored to its original shape. It's not like, I mean, we live in a culture today where it's like, see my cracks, I'm awesome. See all these cracks and brokennesses I have, I'm just awesome. And God says, no, I want to heal that. And it's going to show some scars. And it's going to show some healing. Anyone got some scars here? But when God's is the hand that is repairing those things, he makes it beautiful. And he makes it stronger. Here's point number four. The redeemed know more fully the extent of God's love. And that doesn't mean that we pray for hardship. But when hardship comes in this broken world, to trust that God has in hand a desire to make you this, 
more beautiful and stronger in faith because of his hand and because of his work. In spite of our brokenness, God does that. You know, one of the greatest stories I've ever seen in this is, is, uh, is a very familiar story. You're with, you know, it's, called, it's the lost son, Luke 15. And I'm not going to bore you with a long story of it, but the son says, I want my inheritance. Off he goes. The younger son blows it all. And in the pigsty, he says, Man, the, slur- the slaves at my father's house have it better. I'm going home. See if, God, if, if dad will take me back as a servant. And so he goes back. And a long way off, he sees him. And the father runs to him and takes him. And the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned. Will you take me back as a servant? And the father is hearing none of it. And he embraces. And he gives him the ring, the sandals, the robe. And he cries out to everyone, time to throw a party. He was lost and is found. He was dead. And he's alive again. Here's the part of the story. Who's not very pleased about this? There's an older brother who never left. And who watched his son, his his younger brother, offend his father. And take a third of the inheritance. And now he's home. And he gets a party. And you know, I love when the father comes to him. Because the father goes out to him and pleads with him. Come in and celebrate. Will you come in and... Come in and celebrate. And he says, I'm not doing it. This worthless son of yours did that and you're taking him back? And he says, and I love these words. He goes, son, you're always with me. And here's what he says. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. But your, but your little brother, he was dead. And he's alive. We got to celebrate. We have to celebrate. And so those who have been redeemed kind of get it. They see what God has, what has spent. And, and, you know, that's why I love the season of Lent. I love the season of Lent. I don't know all of your stories. How are we doing? I got to finish. Um, I don't know all of your stories and all of your history. I know some. And I know some families have endured more tragedy than others. And others are going through heartbreak at this very moment. Others are experiencing waiting for diagnoses. Others have experienced loss. It can be financial, relational. I don't know all your stories. I don't have a bunch of deep darks. Lost my mom when I was young. We went through financial hardship as a family. Alcoholism in my family. I mean, there's things like that. Some of you have far, far more grieving stories. And some of you maybe have gone relatively unscathed. But Lent and when we gather in this place, every week we confess. Every week we stop and we say, Lord, I need your grace. And in the season of Lent, we stop and we say this, Lord, I want to be the redeemed. I am the redeemed. Reveal to me once again the extent of your love. This coming Monday, tomorrow, I'm going to talk about the crucifixion of my life in Christ class. And I tell folks, I said, this is going to be, this is going to be yucky. Because the crucifixion is an ugly, ugly thing of one, of one group of humanity being able to be inhumane to another. It is a horrifying thing. And I don't say it to you or teach it to you to be gross or macabre or to somehow be shock value. I need you to know how much you're loved. And that's why Lent is so powerful. That's why redemption is so powerful. Because every time you look at a cross, you know how much you're loved. Last point. In the, uh, in, the, in the gospel lesson, this is for Lent, Jesus is tempted, 
And isn't it interesting, you learn some things about the devil. He goes by three names in there, doesn't he? The tempter, the devil, and Satan. Satan means accuser, the accuser. He accuses us. <clears throat> and so the devil comes and tempts him. It's one of the great lines in scripture, right? Um, for 40 days, Jesus went without food and water, and he was hungry. You think? Yeah, so he was hungry. The devil comes to him at that low point. Isn't that how he works? Comes in that vulnerable moment, comes to Jesus Hey, turn these stones into bread. No way, man. I live by more than that. We live by the word of God. Then the devil goes, he's quoting scripture. The devil quotes scripture. Hey, we're up at the top of the temple. Cast yourself down because the Bible says that angels will come and keep you from stubbing your toe. And then Jesus quotes scripture right back at him. He says, you don't put the Lord, you don't test God. Stop it. And then he takes him up to this mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, and we always laugh at this, don't we, those of us that are Christians? He says, hey, all of these I will give to you if you will just bow down, as if they're his. Now, to be honest, in our world today, sadly, you could almost make that case. It almost sometimes seems that way. But God is in control. Anyway, he says that. Here's what I love about this. Last point, the devil does not understand redemption. And I want you to know this because you do by faith and God knows. And that's how much he loves you is this. When the devil looks out there and looks at all the kings in the world, what does he do? He sees the United States. He sees England. He sees Tanzania. He sees China. He sees Australia. He sees Indonesia, right? That's what he sees. When Jesus looks out there, what does he see? You. Those are the nations of the world. Devil doesn't get it. And Jesus says, those are mine. I redeemed them. I have purchased them. I have won them. They are mine. Whether they receive it or not, I won them. I gave everything. I spared no expense. I have bought them back. And as we journey to the cross, we know where that takes place. Because you are precious in the sight of God, his treasured possession. To God be the glory. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.